Hi, it's Susan, and I'm an expert in helping musicians to have better relationships with themselves and with the world. This episode, we meet Lisa Kobielka, a violinist and patent lawyer. Lisa grew up surrounded by two generations of professional musicians, and her transition to law wasn't an easy one. She talks about learning to communicate with people outside the world of classical music and how her training helps her to explain complex problems, but in simple terms, in the courtroom. Enjoy. Welcome to today's episode of the Change Your Tune podcast. I'm your host, Susan Eldridge, and today I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Lisa Kobielka, who's a partner in a law firm specializing in patent law. Lisa, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Um, can you tell us about your law career and the work you're currently doing specializing in patent law? Certainly. So I, my whole career has been in Silicon Valley in California. I've had uh, the wonderful opportunity to work with some of the most amazing, creative, innovative people who've been coming up with new ideas, different ways to look at things. And a lot of them are smaller, mid-sized companies who have managed to obtain patent protection for their ideas, their inventions, what they do. Sometimes it's trade secret, sometimes it's copyright, sometimes it's just trademark in terms of the source because they've done such a good job with really having the public identify them. And uh, over the years, I've done work for different companies protecting that for them if they are the innovator on the innovator side. I've done some defense work too as well. They have been accused of some sort of infringement And largely what I'm doing these days is on the innovator side, really helping smaller companies ensure that their technology is protected, what they've come up with. Um, And we do trials all across the country involving all different types of technology. Um, You know, the most recent one I did was a big security case. I just had another case against Amazon um, in connection with the Alexa devices but I've done hematopoietic stem cell cases. You, you name the technology, I'm able to do it all, I think in large part because I don't have a technical background. I'm not wed to a specific area. Do you find, Lisa, that one of the strengths then that you bring in that being a beginner um, to whatever the client's work is, is being able to ask really good questions? Yes, and, and asking the basic questions, telling people, I need to understand step one to step two to step mm. three. You know, I work with some of the most brilliant people. You know, they are PhDs in a wide range of different technology areas, everything from computer science to mechanical engineering to electrical engineering, all, and then um, neuroscience, chemistry. I mean, I can go on and on molecular biology. And, you know, their comments to me is like, well, hasn't everyone sequenced DNA? (laughs) I often have to remind them we're going to need to break, you know, break down those steps a little bit and and work through it. But what I bring is being able to ask those questions, then being able to explain them to a judge or to a Mm -hmm. jury who are much like me. They don't have those technical background. Um, and because I'm able to explain it in a way that every, the everyday person can understand it, we, we are able to really convey very persuasively what we need to on behalf of our clients. Mm. So, I mean, it, it's all um, being able to take the complexity 
and and unravel that to explain it in, in its simplicity, which is uh, for pe people who are very deep in their work and surrounded by others who are very deep in the same work, like exactly as you said, they're often unable to, um, to see what we don't see or can't see. Um, Lisa, it's fascinating, and you, it sounds like you would be an excellent Jeopardy contestant with the range, <laughs> the range of knowledge that you have across disciplines. Um, but this isn't a podcast about sequencing DNA. Um, before this work that you do now in law, you trained and had a very successful career in music. Um, can you start at the very beginning and tell us all about that journey? Absolutely. And I should probably preface it with my family because I come from generations of musicians. You know, my grandfather and grandmother um, were violinists and uh, my grandfather played with Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops. He was a well-known violin teacher up and down the East Coast. Uh, my father and uncle were both also musicians. They, you know, my uncle was a cellist, believe it or not, in the Air Force the band they actually had some some cellists there he retired from that he's now tuning pianos um but my father was a principal violin uh, second violinist of san francisco for many years uh, was a child prodigy growing up and so on that side of the family was very strong music my mom is a concert pianist she came to the united states on a fulbright scholarship from a premier school in japan i guess i would call it like the juilliard of japan tohogaken and um, is a fantastic pianist. Um, and so growing up, we, my, my brother and I had really no option other than we had to do music. That was, you know, a life skill as far as we were concerned. And it was very much prevalent throughout our lives. It, it, we had music in the house, I would say, starting from about 5 a.m. until about 2 a.m. in the morning because, you know, somebody was practicing somewhere. My, my brother was a fantastic, is a fantastic cellist, by the way. He was also a child prodigy um, on the cello. And so we were either practicing or there was lessons going on in different rooms of the house. So there was constantly music. Um, and that's all we knew and did. The weekends were dedicated to music. I spent my entire Saturdays at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music doing theory, chamber music, you name it. And uh, then eventually doing San Francisco Youth Orchestra. And my primary instrument was violin. I, I do, in fact, play piano as well. And I, um, you know, taught piano for a, a long time as well as violin. And then we had a piano quartet in my family. And my dad insisted that I play viola. He was not going to play the viola there. <laughs> he was the violinist. And so we had that as well. And so we would concertize, you know, um, all over as a result of that. And so I, I had music coming out of my ears. Uh, I went to college at UC Davis. I did my master's in music. I minored in philosophy. But while I was there at Davis, I decided to take an audition with the Sacramento Symphony. And I was young. I was 19. So I was pretty young at that time to be doing it. I was going to school at the same time. Uh, and I was very lucky. I ended up getting a job with them. And that job continued. And I was really enjoying my, my music experience. It was I was doing touring. I was playing gigs. I was doing all different types of music, classical music, largely with the violin at that point. And I realized, especially this is what happened with the, the Sacramento Symphony, they were starting to go bankrupt and they were having some issues. We had a lockout and things like that. And I was talking to some of the other musicians and I said, so what are you going to do after this? And one of them said, what else can I do? I can't do anything else. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange. 
because I never felt that way. I never felt like that was the only thing I could do. I realized at that point, I wanted to think about all the different options for myself. So I graduated from college and I actually applied to both um, music school to get a master's degree as well as law school. And I had a bunch of different options. And I was uh, surprised I got into the master's program at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And so I said, let me do that. This is gonna be a lot of fun. There was a violin teacher I really wanted to study with there, Zavin Malikian. And um, I went in and, and auditioned and he took me on as a student. And sure enough, I went and did my master's degree and I kept deferring law school. So law school was kind of always out there. Then I had an opportunity to uh, audition with the Marola Opera, which is in San Francisco, and that's their touring group. And I landed the job there. And at this point, my mom was like, what are you doing? You're not going to be a musician. Why are you doing this? And I said, I need to do as much as I can in music while I can, because I do love it. It is a true, true passion for me. Law school is not going anywhere for me. Uh, you know, it will always be there. That's not going to somehow evaporate. But if I don't keep up my musical skills and, and do as much as I can and live it to its fullest, I'm going to lose out on, on those opportunities. So I ended up doing that tour for a year with the Marola Opera Orchestra. Um, and then I was ready to go to law school. And I have to say that tour was fantastic. We did most of the United States. A large part of it was through on a bus where I got to see most of this amazing country here in the US playing for audiences, some in New York and some in the smallest towns you can't imagine. And the appreciation for opera and music was fantastic. And it gave me such a wonderful perspective of the world. And it made me, I was ready at that point to try something completely different. So then I decided to go to law school at that point. Lisa, it's such a fascinating story. I'm really interested in in the that conversation you had with your colleagues in Sacramento. For somebody like you who you were in a universe of music with your generations of your family, there wasn't anything else. And for somebody like you to be able to have that um, to see their perspective of when they said, well, I can't, what else would I do? I can't do anything else. But for you not to have that perspective when that's where you're coming from, how do you think that you were able, how do you think you had that perspective at that point? You know, I always felt like if you worked hard, if you had discipline and you had certain fundamental values, you can do anything. And I never felt that music was ever limiting for me. I always felt like it opened my mind to so many new and different things, but it really gave me this incredible discipline. Let, let me be really clear though. Going to law school and starting law school was really hard. It, it was very, very difficult because I suddenly had to completely change my approach to everything and how I think about things. And, you know, it wasn't an easy transition at all. I think I was lucky because I was still at an age where I was really taking on and learning and, and trying to embrace everything that life had to offer. Right. I think, you know, it might have been different if I was 60 years old or 50 years old. Um, you know, that that may be a, a, a different look at that point. But I was really interested in what the world had to offer. And I felt like you could do anything. The, the discipline that music taught me also it was something that I recognized I, and I saw even in, in college and elsewhere, so many people didn't have it. They just di didn't have that same kind of discipline that allows you to really go out there and do what you want to do. 
Oh, I completely agree. And also what I'm hearing, Lisa, is you talking about that music was really the mechanism for you to learn and grow. Mm-hmm. And that, that was where, so you were immersed in the world of music, but really the value for you was in being challenged um, and in learning and connecting with others. So law was just the next thing that was going to allow you to continue to learn and be challenged and stretched. So maybe that's part of it is that um, for you, the, the it was process-driven. Yeah. It's about the being embedded in the process. Absolutely. Process is, is such an important correct? part of what I do as a lawyer. And I have to say the amount of hours that we have to log to do what we do because it's really high-end, high-stakes litigation that we're involved in, you have to put in so many hours, so much dedication, so much work, a willingness to learn some of the most difficult technologies in the world, right? And then figuring out how do I put that together and make it persuasive, interesting, all of the above. And what, you know, it's so funny, I have so many lawyers say, why did you become a lawyer? You were a musician, it's fantastic. (laughs) And there's no parallels. And I said, I actually think there are an incredible number of parallels. I said, in music, you get the music, you get a set of notes, right? You have an opportunity to put your spin on it, your interpretation. In law, I get a set of facts. I'm given what I'm given. And I've got to figure out how am I going to make those facts sing in the most persuasive way or connect with people and people I don't know, right? Just like an audience, if you're, you're playing a concerto and you have an audience of 2000, you've got to read your room. You've got to feel the moment and what is connecting with those people. I do that in law. I do that with jury trials. I don't know those jurors. I don't get a chance to talk to them. I don't have any of those opportunities. The judge I do, usually you have a little more chance, but I've now got to figure out how do I connect with these very diverse people who come from everywhere who may not know anything about this technology and make it persuasive and sing to them. And I said, there, there are parallels there. And the best part about and doing the jury trials and doing the patent stuff is that I get to be really creative with it. I have such a different perspective than all of my colleagues do that I am able to talk about how can we be creative with these arguments or how we present this. And I do that all the time. So it makes it actually a lot of fun. And my colleagues enjoy it quite a bit too, because for them, it's not a grind because we're always talking about how do we make an invention, which is really an abstract thing come to life which is very similar to what we do in music all the time. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And the way you're speaking about the parallels, it makes it makes such sense. And um, to your colleagues who um, maybe don't see the connection, um, this is the second series of this podcast I've done. And, and of all the people I've interviewed, I've probably approached, you know, six times more the amount of people that we've ended up interviewing. And the number one profession that profession that musicians who choose to transition into that I can find around the world is law. Really? There's more lawyers by a factor of four than any other profession. Um, and they speak, it's all about this parallel of performance, um, user experience design, um, taking complexity and distilling it down, presenting a narrative that makes sense to strangers in the room, um, ex- exactly all the stuff that you were, you were talking about. And it strikes me like um, almost like composers. This would also be a really great thing for, com- for composers who, st- 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 as you said, start with a set of facts but have to make sense of that and put it together into, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to, you have a 60 minute symphony to create out of this, um, 
fragments of things to put together. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, so, Lisa, I'm interested then when you were growing up and even, even into your um, early college days, what was, your, what was the identity that you held of yourself? How did you think of yourself and how did you explain when people met you and asked who you were and what you did? What, what was that when you were deep in music? And then how did, you, how did that change as you moved into law as a student and as a professional? I always identified um, as a musician, but particularly a violinist. I would always say I'm a violinist. I had done a wide range of things, including a fair bit of composition and the like. And you, you name it, music, I had, I had done it. And um, even had done some studio recording. My dad had a uh, record company. And one of the albums we ended up doing, which was a little bit different, was an album with Jerry Garcia um, and Dave Grisman, uh, who's a fantastic mandolin player. We did, you know, we recorded that actually out at D Dave Grisman's house. And uh, Jerry Garcia's daughter, Heather, was a violinist, so she played. And Dave Grisman's son was a guitarist, and so he played, as well as me and my brother played with my father. And we, we had done this album. So I had just really a diverse experience. But I would always just tell people, really, I was a violinist. And that that's how I identified myself, at least by profession and, and in general. I don't think it's changed much now that I'm you know, an attorney, I will tell people I'm a lawyer if they're, you know, more interested in who I am. I said, you know, actually, I'm really a musician <laughs> at heart. Um, because I think that that is fundamentally in many respects, you know, who I am and what has driven me. I still, you know, at, when I was a musician, I would see people and I would hear music, right? And I think that's still very much true to this day. I don't think that's changed how I hear things. Um, is very different than most people. I'm a very literal person, probably because I hear everything. I do have perfect pitch. It does make me crazy when something's a little bit off and things like that, but I hear things very, very specifically. Um, as a result, I probably articulate things very specifically as well. So, but to answer your question, I, I think I really, I say I'm an attorney, but, you know, but I don't, at the end of the day, my identity is me. I don't let an attorney drive who I am as a person. Um, just like as, when I was a musician, I don't think I necessarily did it, but that's how I would identify myself. That's, it's, it's really interesting, Lisa, because the stories that I hear of musicians, and, and one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is I want to address in, in, others, in other sectors, it's okay to choose to leave. And, and you're referred to as, oh, this is... Tony and Tony, Tony used to be a dentist and dentistry wasn't working for Tony or Tony was seeking more in his life and now Tony does X, Y, Z. But, but in our world of classical music, it's about you weren't good enough or you didn't cut it. You know, there's um, because um, death or injury are the only two acceptable exit strategies apparently if you've had a professional music career. Um, but people don't speak about themselves as being musicians if they're not earning a living wage doing thing there's not and that like it, that really bothers me because exactly as you said the skills that make you excellent in law are fun of foundation skills from music education and your music experiences so you should speak you should say that you're a musician because it is what you do and you're articulating and amplifying that through the law through law but we have so so many and, and what i what i tend to hear from people who have transitioned is those who've had a, a who've felt a sense of 
um, agency in their career transition are able to speak about themselves as being a musician in this new career that they do yeah. and those who've had a traumatic uh, or challenging uh, challenging transition don't they can't they, have, they, they can't they can't sit um, because the notions of success as a musician is pay, being paid to play um, and they, they can't construct in their own head or I'm, I'm, I'm successful if I'm using the skills mm. regardless of how that happens. So like I'm just made me just made me jump up with joy a little bit to hear you say that, that you still identify, you still say to people that you're a musician, it's who you are, you know, how you, I, you do I think, what you do. Yeah, and I think so many musicians also don't recognise how wonderful it is what they were able to do when they were able to do it. And, and that is so important. You know, I, I think the pandemic has brought into focus for so many different people what they do. And, you know, one of my best friends is a cellist. And she said, you know, the one thing, if I even never get to play a concert again, because she goes, I don't know what's going to happen here. <laughs> she said, I think about all the amazing experiences that I have had as a musician. And I have to be so grateful and thankful for that because it's fed my soul. And I, I think you want to be really mindful. You don't want to lose sight of that because I do understand you do get injuries. I, I've seen it to so many people over the years, whether they're dancers or musicians or otherwise, you know, athletes, you name it, it, it happens. And you have to remember those moments that are great because they're with you forever. No one can ever take that away from you. And I still, I still have great memories of a moment when Kurt Mazur came and conducted the orchestra and the moment that I was like, oh my God, he made complete sense of this particular phrase in this Brahms, you know, symphony that I, on the, no one will be able to take that away from me. I still get goosebumps when I think about it and it's some 40 years later or something like that, right? <laughs> so um, you have to remember those things. And I think those things will help drive whatever else you do next. They have to. And I think there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, work to be done in the noise and signal with young musicians about success and the success should be you finding your way to articulate your musical voice rather than it being um so again process very process driven rather than um outcome driven because that's the problem is there's a couple of models of what success look like um instead of being it's up to you especially now where like who knows what's going to sit on, on really on the other side of the pandemic there will be um lots of organizations won't make it won't won't make it through because of the the way their operations have had to change and um if we came much back to what is the what is the point of learning music and that is to to challenge and elevate yourself to be the best version that you can and to be able to share that and connect with others. And like, wouldn't it be great if that was on the, like that was on the brochures. Right. <laughs> but right. It's helping you to be a great human and how you choose to be a great human in the world is up to you. Right. Um, we're all so distinctive. So it, it's just so, it's really so interesting to hear that, that that's, that's been your journey and your perspective from someone with such um who was so I'm not using this derogative in a derogative way, but such a hothouse of um, uh, musical excellence and professional and, and a professional musical world from a very young age that you've been able to unravel that um, and keep that yeah. to yourself. Um, Lisa, you spoke about the skills that you use that you're using that you use every day in your career as a lawyer. Is there anything else you think that um, I mean? 
the the work that you do now is so complex. Uh, it's project management, it's people management, it's business management, it's the execution of the law. Is there? I'd, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about the way that you the way that you work with people and how your music training influences the relationships that you build within your organization and with and with your clients. So, uh, you know, that's actually interesting. That was a journey for me. I, I'm not, I have to be honest, it wasn't like it naturally translates because how, how musicians communicate with one another, particularly how your teachers communicate with you, your music teachers, you know, they, they are very direct, very blunt. That is probably not true in the business world. <laughs> that is not necessarily how people communicate with one another. And, um, you know, I, I remember like, you know, you practice a, a piece for five, six, seven hours. You go to your lesson, your teacher's like, what are you doing? That's unacceptable. They say it with all the love in their heart, but that is how they would talk about it. That doesn't work when you you work in a law firm, right? That That is not the, the, the same in way that you would want to communicate with them. So I had to learn a little bit better about how do people communicate outside of the music world? And that was okay. That was a good skill to learn. I was used to how conductors would yell at you, you know, that's not <laughs> really how people work together in, a, in an office environment. Um, that being said, what I was able to offer up to, to different people was how different my background was. And we could talk about different things that we did that gets us to a common place such that we could work together and communicate very, very effectively. And, uh, you know, people invariably found that the fact that I did music was always very interesting. And so that was very helpful. Uh, also, so many people, you know, share a love of music. And so we could talk about music, even though they may be engineers or others um, who became lawyers, which is largely the, the folks that I work with. And so we would all share a passion for music and different types of music and how we would hear things and, and do things. So I think those things were very helpful. Uh, overall, but they, you know, maybe playing some chamber music that was helpful because that's a very intense working environment where you're having to really get to an end result. I found that to be very helpful for some of, you know, going to trial with a team because we've got to present overall something to a jury and getting it just right, you know, perfecting it to a, um, to a point where people could understand where we wanted to go with it. That, I think that was helpful. Um, doing a lot of contemporary music, I, I was raised with a ton of contemporary music. So as a result, atonal music never really bothered me, which a lot of classical musicians, some are, are very much attuned to that. My parents were all about premiering contemporary music. So I, I heard it all the time. And uh, I found that also to be very helpful because it's thinking, hearing things that are very, very different or sort of I don't know how else to describe it that may not be the norm. What was helpful to kind of bringing that into when I was doing the law, it wasn't so foreign to me. I was able to make sense of things and try to explain it in a way that um, while it may be very complicated or out there, very different, I was able to do that. And also, you know, understanding musicians, because there's a lot of really creative musicians trying to understand their story um, who they are. A lot of them come at things from such different angles. That's very much true of scientists, innovators, people that I work with. And so that I had a real comfort level with. That was never an issue for me where there were some lawyers who were like, oh my God, 
it's going to take 25 minutes to get to the point. I said, no, but you've got to listen along the ways. There's so many nuggets. Just, just find, you know, listen to what we're saying because they're giving you a lot more than you realize. And they are actually answering your question. It just may take a lot longer, <laughs> you know, than you think, but you're getting what you need. So there, there are different skill sets, I think, that ultimately helped get me there. Um, I love that saying of we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> Listen twice as hard as you're speaking. Um, yeah. I love that, uh, Lisa, the um, analogy or the connection you're making between the atonal music or something that's that's um, challenging and new to the ear uh, and being able to sit in the sit in the newness and the discomfort and the confusion of that but knowing that you'll be able to unravel that to something that will make sense to you. Um, and that's exactly what you're doing now in, in working with these scientists and inventors and engineers is, is sitting in the confusion mm -hmm. and, and, and allowing the other, yeah, just being able to be, be being comfortable with the discomfort of not knowing and, 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 but trusting that this will make sense. And I think that's exactly, that's like, one of the main things that quality music education gives us is it prepares us to sit in discomfort and and um, uncertainty, but have a level of confidence that clarity will come. Because um, that's what I see so much from I do a lot of work with young young musicians of all genres is that the the ability to sit in the discomfort or or even avoiding they're avoiding failing. They avoid yeah. trying to avoid failing because we've schooled them, schooled them into models of what success looks like. Um, and, yeah, complete avoidance of anything that they might not be perfect at um, and, and an in, and inability to sit in uncertainty. Yeah, and, and like, post-pandemic, I mean, that is the new reality is yeah. that uncertainty is new normal. Um and I think we, yeah, we could be doing much more to help young musicians. And I think that also comes from, as you were talking about the training model of teacher as teacher as expert, um, of one-way communication about being judged mm -hmm. uh, rather than being helped to be uh, independent in our learning and do much more assessment of our own growth. So there's much work to be done. <laughs> and I, I, I think the creativity... <laughs> <laughs> the, the creativity aspects that musicians can bring to the table, though, it, it what it should translate into, my apologies, is, <laughs> is, is really, um, sorry, I wish I could hang that up. But anyways, it's yeah. fine. <laughs> sorry. Um, but, you know, the, it translates into opportunity. And so while the pandemic has been really rough on musicians and things like that, use that as opportunity. Mm. That, that's really an important thing to do. I mean, I, I tell, told my kids that as well, who, you know, they were, they're studying music, but you know, the, the, the time that you have, there's opportunity to do new and different things. So what are you going to do with it? You don't want to look back and say, what did I wish I, I could have done a year ago mm. or two years ago with that time that I had? Um, Cause you can be creative and do a lot. Yeah, and the, and the, exactly as you, the, the career that you have now is this creativity in, in STEM. Mm -hmm. You know, it's built on creativity. It's built on having ideas and questioning our thinking. So also knowing that creativity doesn't, isn't the domain of um, creative, creative industries. Um, yeah. it's, the engine that, it's the engine of ideas. 
that's how we get to things. Um, Lisa, this has been fascinating. I'd just love to um, ask you one more question. What what role does music play in your life right now? It plays a huge role. So, <laughs> you know, my husband and I made a decision that music is always going to be a huge part of our lives. And it is in so many different aspects. You know, with my children, I told them it is a life skill. And of course, my son, who when he was, you know, six or seven, didn't want to practice every day. You know, he asked his, his second grade teacher, is, is piano really a life skill? And she said, no, it's not. And he comes home, he said, I asked my teacher, right, whether or not it was. And I said, oh, but in this family, it is. You know, I'm sorry that it absolutely is. It's, you're going to learn that along with swimming, school, and how to tie your shoe. I mean, these, these are <laughs> the life skills of the world. So but both my kids have that, and I get to do music with them, and we share that and enjoy it quite a bit. And now my son, who at age 14, he's, he just turned 15, he's teaching music. He's actually teaching music to younger kids, piano, and he's so appreciative of it. He's doing jazz piano as well as classical piano. And he's a fantastic pianist. He doesn't have to practice too much. I don't, I don't put too much pressure on him, but I let him do what he wants to do with it. My daughter has been doing violin. And so I told them, I want the three of us to play the Bach double violin concerto. So my son is doing the accompaniment and the two of us are playing. And at first they really looked at me cross-eyed and said, this is not something I want to do, but we've been doing it and they're having so much fun doing it. They're really, really enjoying it. So that's actually been a nice thing to do during the pandemic was that we got to do that. So I definitely have that with my mom still concertizing and playing, you know, um, it, it, I very much have music. There've been times, my brother as well, he's had a number of concerts, he's asked me to come in and play. I have to say probably in the last five to seven years has been a lot less, but I have been asked to come in and sub. My, um, my, my brother-in-law is Michael Feinstein and he um, is, you know, the, what do they call him? The American songbook expert. Uh, he had worked for Ira Gershwin and um, so he's a big part of our lives as well and so there's times that you know he's got an orchestra playing he'll say oh can you come in and play and so I've, I've done that for some different things but we're surrounded by music all the time my husband then he decided to start a record company we released a number of different albums of different music musicians um, one of my friends who's a fantastic trumpet player my brother's a cellist um, we did anyways we, we've done a wide range of things so I can't say, you know, it's just a huge part of our life and everyday life. And it's all kinds of music. It's not limited to just classical, thankfully, which is, I, I think, a good thing. Um, it's so amazing and beautiful, Lisa, to hear that, the, 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 that such a big part of the value of music for you is connecting with family. And that's, that's what it was for you as a child and you're, like, um, continuing that, that legacy from your Grand, grandparents and grandfather and your parents yeah. going forwards. Um, I know what that's like. I My children are musicians as well. Um, Great. Musician, musician parent. Um, and we play in stuff together as well. And it's just, it's such, there's nothing, and, and my dad was a musician um, and there's nothing, my sister's a musician too, nothing like sitting with your family. And we don't do chamber music, unfortunately, so we're not quite so close. We're in a larger ensemble. But really, as I can see it in, you know, in your face, uh, even though our listeners can't see that, um, the joy that comes from being able to make make music with your parents and with your children, it's such, it's such a gift. Um, it really is. It's, it really, it's a unique yeah. experience and a unique connection that you have to one another that will last forever. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 
it's you know it's the conversation around the dinner table and it's it's the social events that you go to and it's just it's the fabric of your life yeah lisa it's been such a gift thank you for sharing your story um it's been so just really wonderful to unpack how music has has been a thread throughout your life and um the value that you continue to derive from all of those musical experiences and the work that you're doing now. So um, I'll put links to anything uh, we've discussed in the show notes. But, uh, yeah, again, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to, um, to speak with you today. No, thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please help me share these stories by sharing this with others. You can post about it on your socials, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or you can leave me a rating and a review about this podcast. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Notable Values. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.